Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges, their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Najia Shawkat Lepsen. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an intersystems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time in service to the sacredness of life. Quick note before we get started, this is a critical episode and provides the foundation for all the episodes that follow. So I highly recommend listening to this one before you listen to any of the others. This is a unique time to be alive. We are living in a time between worlds. The old world is dying and a new one is seeking to be born. How can we support the emergence of a more beautiful world? These are the questions that I've been wrestling with for the past six years, particularly since my own near-death experience in 2018 while birthing my son. As one of many species sharing this beautiful earth, we are all in a communally tumultuous time. Can you feel it? Something's not quite right. Maybe you wonder why you have to work 60 hours a week to just get by. Maybe you're trying to figure out the right educational approach or school for your child and struggling because the world is changing so fast and you're wondering, how do we prepare kids for a world we can't even imagine? Maybe you're tired of taking your kids to and from the long list of activities they have going on outside of school just so they can be competitive amongst their peers when it comes time to apply for college. Maybe you live in a much less privileged part of the world and struggle daily to put food into the bellies of your children, or, despite living in a privileged country, struggle with the same. Maybe you're just annoyed by why organic produce is so fucking expensive. For many in the world, destruction lies at the doorstep, yet life finds a way to keep lifing. And I'm far from hopeless. My hope drives me to unrelentingly dig deeper to try and understand how our existential crises are interrelated, and what that their root, so that perhaps we can collectively tip towards the emergence of a more beautiful world. I've been on a journey to uncover what's uniquely and meaningfully mine to do during this time. Maybe that's why you're here. Some people say that we're living in a state of polycrisis, or permacrisis. I prefer to capture our current moment in world history with a different term, the metacrisis. And I'll explain what this means and why I think it so aptly captures what we're all living through right now. There are innumerable brilliant researchers, scientists, thinkers, writers, practitioners, and teachers who have contributed enormously to my understanding of the metacrisis. I can't name them all here, but I do want to call out and thank in particular Daniel Schmachtenberger, Zach Stein, Nora Bateson, Bio Komalafe, Jeremy Lent, Daniel Christian Wall. Robin Wall Kimmerer, and Tyson Yunkaporta, whose work has profoundly influenced and affected me. I will never do justice to unpacking the metacrisis in a single podcast episode, but this is my best attempt at consolidating some of what I've learned and hopefully communicating it in a way that won't make you fall asleep or want to throw yourself in a river. This is meant to be an overview, and if it resonates, I encourage you to continue deepening your understanding of the metacrisis and in particular, the themes I cover that really awaken something inside you. And I'll include some resources in the show notes. Last note before we get started, 
The stuff hits you in your gut and can unleash profound grief once you really get it. And so I hope you can take the time to process it with support from others. I found Joanna Macy's books and teachings, particularly The Work That Reconnects, to be really helpful in working through the grief that will inevitably arise. There are also other communities of practice wrestling with this stuff, like Benita Roy's Pop-Up School, Jeremy Lent's Deep Transformation Network, an online global community of over 3,000 people engaging with others in facilitating a deep transformation. Nora Bateson's work in Warm Data is also profound, and she offers Warm Data Lab host trainings once a year, and those who complete the course are invited to the Warm Data Lab network. There are also coaches like Samantha Sweetwater and Daniel Thorson who understand and ground their coaching in the context of the metacrisis. So don't go through this alone. Find the others so that you can find joy through the despair and contribute towards the ever-evolving web of life. Okay, let's dive in. I'll start with defining a word, metacrisis. According to the Civilization Research Institute, the metacrisis is the total ecosystem of all global crises and the common underlying dynamics that generate catastrophic and existential risks. So we're talking here about catastrophic and existential risks like climate change and surpassing other planetary boundaries, vast income inequality, artificial intelligence risk, synthetic biology, nuclear war risk. These are the big things, right? But what we're really talking about with the metacrisis are the underlying drivers that each of these crises share, that they all have in common. So the metacrisis covers much more than the polycrisis or the permacrisis because it includes the crisis unfolding within our minds and our cultures. It gets to the real roots of the crises we face. It's as much about souls, culture, and society as it is about systems. Zach Stein talks about how education, in the broadest sense of the term, is the metacrisis. And it has to do with how humans understand ourselves and the world. It is our psyche that is in the direst of straits, our fragmented consciousness that sees everything as separate parts, where you upregulate some parts relative to other parts without thinking about the effect on the whole. That may be at the root of the metacrisis. This is the more invisible aspect of the metacrisis, if you will, and it's important to keep in mind as I talk through the more visible aspects of it. There's so much more to explore on this topic, which I won't have time to cover in this episode, but hope to explore in future ones. All of this sounds so big and complex, so let's first go through an overview of the more visible metacrisis so you can hold the big picture in your mind as we unpack each bit in this episode. We are facing many interrelated existential risks. Climate change, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, nuclear war risk, income inequality, polarization, pandemics, failures in public education, diminished sense-making, artificial intelligence risk, the list is extensive, and these are all symptoms of a world system that is failing. As best as some of the greatest thinkers of our time can discern, there are three major common underlying drivers to all our global crises. One, market economies with perverse incentives. Two, externalities of growth, business, and industry. Three, group coordination problems like the multipolar trap. Don't worry, I'll explain each of these in detail a bit later. For now, let's talk about the fact that local civilizations have collapsed before. In fact, 
It's been a recurrent feature of human societies. But what's unique about this moment is that we are a global, highly interconnected civilization, which also means highly fragile. And it's critical to get that the metacrisis is both seen and unseen. What some of the leading thinkers on the topic can perceive is what we're going to talk about in this episode. The unseen element is also critically important, and we can't talk about it because it's outside our perception. As Nora Bateson says, quote, This unseen realm is vital, non-trivial, and sacred, and it is real. I am increasingly finding that the most fecund realms of change, learning, and evolution are beyond the organism's current capacity to perceive. End quote. For now, remember that nothing that can be talked about is ever the full story. So where we are now is that civilization, hammered by all of these crises, could go in two possible directions. One is chaos, where no one's in control and there's a lack of law and order. Two is dystopia, where society comes under totalitarian rule. Think The Handmaid's Tale. These are both bad, but there is a third option, what Daniel Schmachtenberger and others are calling a third attractor that's possible, which will take all of everything humanity can possibly bring to the table, and it's absolutely worth working towards. The third attractor is a new level of global coordination that brings about the well-being of all of life on Earth. If humanity survives, it will be because a world system emerges that is capable of navigating the metacrisis. Okay, let's unpack all this bit by bit. We'll begin by framing the global problems. Many of our most insidious global problems seem to be getting worse. Climate change, biodiversity loss, ocean acidification. I don't think you need me to mention them all again. But these are all symptoms of an entangled mix of underlying drivers which once you understand them, can be an answer to the question of, why is this all happening? I say can be an answer, because remember what I said about seen and unseen. It's important to recognize that there are unpredictable, unknowable aspects of life that are outside human perception. And so even our very best thought-through, multi-perspective, data-informed, scientific explanation will only ever be a model of reality. And so we need to hold it lightly as a way to orient ourselves and the actions we take, but we should never be so hubristic as to think we can ever construct solutions to such complex challenges. We do not have that kind of control over the universe. We can, however, navigate our challenges in ways that are less destructive and more oriented towards being in service to the sacredness of life. Now, the way we are working to solve our global crisis is the crisis, as brilliant writer Bio Akumalafe beautifully states. If you try to solve any of these complex global issues individually without factoring in the deep underlying dynamics at play, at best you might solve the problem in a very narrow way, but you'll likely externalize harm somewhere else or drive polarization that then creates new, more wicked problems. The metrics we're tasked to optimize often make things better in one place, often a richer and whiter place, and much worse in another, often a poorer and darker-skinned place. So let's say you've come up with a technology or a law or a nonprofit to solve a problem. 
You have to narrowly define the problem to produce a first-order effect and narrowly define the success metrics, especially to raise funding. And implement your solution, but it interacts with ecologies and societies and people that are complex, and it has second, third, fourth, and nth-order effects, which, of course, you cannot completely measure and predict, but you're not even tasked with trying to consider where your solution might have unintended consequences. So, let's say you're working on tackling climate change. We know we have to move away from fossil fuels that are warming the earth and towards more renewable sources of energy, like solar, wind, and hydro. So say you're working to pass legislation in the U.S. that will speed up electrification. Seems like a good thing. But where are the minerals coming from to power this renewable energy transformation? Does it mean someone in Chile now has to engage in mountaintop removal and displace indigenous people and employ children in deep pit mines to get the minerals that will power the renewable energy transformation in the U.S.? Well, that's not good. Even worse, those minerals we're mining, we're running out of. Simon Michaud, a geologist who has deeply studied mineral reserves, has published research that shows that we don't have enough minerals globally, even if you include deep sea mining, to actually transition the entire fossil-fueled global economy to a renewable one for even one single generation. So how do we use a broader lens to think about solutions that can minimize the harm that's displaced and maximize the benefits for the whole? And how do you solve one problem without making another one worse? Of course everything has trade-offs, but by trying to systematically map out many causes of a problem, we can try to work towards better solutions that address more than one problem. Of course, even the language of problem and solution is reductive, because when we're talking about complex issues, these aren't one-and-done solutions. There's ongoing management, like steering a sailboat. So I actually prefer the language of predicaments and responses. And it's critical to understand that we can do a much better job of thinking through what the first, second, third, and nth order effects of our solutions might be, and we should strive to do it as completely as possible while knowing that we never can. You should be very suspicious of anyone who tells you they know how to solve these gnarly problems. That being said, we can do a lot better by focusing on the relationships that build life, letting ideas mix together, creating the conditions for authentic collaboration across diverse groups of people, organizations, sectors, and societies, and continually working to expand our perception of what's going on so that we may become humans capable of stewarding our unique power in service of life. I mentioned that this time period is unique. Things are getting better and worse at the same time. But the things that are getting worse are leading to the rapid destruction of life on Earth faster than the things that are getting better. So it's like a tub that's draining faster than we can keep filling it with clean water. And we have to go back in time a little to understand why this time period is unique. First, local civilizations have collapsed before, but never before has humanity been on the brink of global civilizational collapse and challenges that threaten human extinction. During early civilizations, we didn't have the technological capacity to destroy the entire planet, but we did have the technological capacity to destroy our local environments. It's one of the main reasons early civilizations failed. Local civilizations have historically always collapsed around 
the three to four hundred year mark from overuse of the environment or internal infighting or destruction by other more technologically advanced tribes. Think of the Roman, Mayan, and Easter Island civilizations. The U.S. has passed the 300-year mark, and unfortunately, a collapse of the U.S. empire will ripple out to the globe. To understand all of this, we need to go back a bit further. By World War II, humans had developed the first existential technology that could actually make the entire planet uninhabitable, the nuclear bomb. The threat of the nuclear bomb was also the first time we actually had to make an entire world system organized around never using it because it could destroy us all. This was the idea of mutually assured destruction. We wanted to avoid World War III, so we created the Bretton Woods system, which made the U.S. dollar the world currency to which every other currency was pegged and pegged that to gold. We also established an international monetary system dependent on exponential growth of GDP, or gross domestic product. In the simplest of terms, GDP is basically a very imperfect measure of all the goods and services a country produces, and it's the key metric all nations use to measure economic growth and work to maximize. And to top it all off, we created intergovernmental institutions to maintain this new world order mainly the World Bank, the United Nations, and the International Monetary Fund. We built integrated global supply chains, and this made us so economically dependent on each other that it was in each nation's best interest to not go to war. Wars have historically been largely based on people wanting more stuff so they can have more power, and they can do that by taking someone else's stuff, but if there's more than enough stuff to go around, then maybe countries won't fight with each other. This was the thinking behind creating an economic system based on the exponential growth of GDP. We thought, let's take from nature instead of each other. Let's grow the pie instead of trying to figure out how to split the pie, which would require dealing with all sorts of messy issues like race, equity, and justice. Now here's the critical thing to get. The exponential growth of GDP is destroying the planet. The more energy we use, the more stuff we produce, the more we destroy the planet. It's an almost one-to-one -one correlation. And all of that money is used in a linear materials economy, which turns what we extract from the earth into stuff we use for a little while, then throw away into landfills or dump into the ocean. You cannot run an exponential financial system coupled to a linear materials economy on a finite planet forever. Johan Rockström and his colleagues have defined nine planetary boundaries that we must remain within for humanity to thrive, and we've already passed six of them. We are destroying our life support system, and we cannot survive if we destroy everything we depend upon. Literally the definition of a self-terminating system. Okay, why else is this time period unique? The second factor is that there have never been more humans alive at any one point in history. Humans have been around for about 250,000 years, and our population size has remained fairly consistent for 99.9% .9 of that time. We reached a billion people in the late 1800s. With the Industrial Revolution, and in particular fossil fuels and fertilizers and pesticides helping us grow more food, we went from 1 billion to 8 billion people almost in the blink of an eye. We are in overshoot 
which means that the current consumption of the average person is more than the planet can sustain. And more humans means more extraction from the Earth turned into waste to support those humans. Many scientists agree that the average carrying capacity of the Earth is closer to 4 billion people. Maybe it's not 4 billion people, but it's likely not 8 billion. It's important to say that there are vast differences between how much the average person from the United States versus the average person from a country like Ghana consumes. Eight men now own more wealth than half of all of humanity. The consumption and wealth of these men are driving infinitely more destruction than the average person anywhere on Earth. Third, we began extracting fossil fuels from the Earth in the 1700s and have extracted more than half of all fossil fuels ever created in the last 50 years. We've released so much carbon into the atmosphere that the Earth is now hotter than it's been in the past 6,000 years. By 2050, over 5 billion people will be exposed to at least one month of health-threatening heat each year. Nations like Pakistan and India face the highest risk. The continuation of all life in the biosphere is now at risk. Fourth, as far as we know, humans are unique from other species because we have developed technology with the power to affect all of life on Earth. We can look at a rock and imagine that we can shape and sharpen it into a tool to cut wood and then create that tool. No other species that we know of has that cognitive capability. So we've been able to develop technology that allows us to dominate and extract from where we live, cut down the trees, overfish the oceans, and move on to other places and do the same thing over and over and over again. Of course, we're now running out of places on Earth to extract from, and the technology we've developed is supercharging our destruction in ways that we're often completely unaware of. The advent of artificial intelligence in particular brings many potential risks and benefits. It supercharges everything we're already doing. AI is different from any other tech that we've ever developed because it's a recursive technology, meaning it keeps learning how to get better at learning. And it's getting fed with human-created knowledge, which means it will amplify and speed up everything humans are already doing. That's literally what it's for. Now, remember I said things are getting better and worse at the same time, but what's getting worse is happening faster and more broadly than what's getting better? AI, on its current trajectory, will speed up that curve. Now, you might still say we've had technological innovations before that were predicted to transform society. But AI is different in kind than any other technology we've developed because it has the capacity to beat humans at a finitely definable task, and it can learn faster than humans ever can. This could be pretty catastrophic in our current political and market-based economy where most people need a job to put food on the table. There's a lot more to say about AI, and for those interested in digging deeper, I'd point you to two podcast episodes that Daniel Schmachtenberger and Zach Stein did separately that I'll include in the show notes. Okay, fifth, our global civilization is now so complex and integrated that it's also highly fragile. It's like we've built a gigantic mansion on chopstick-thin wooden stilts that are being eaten by termites. Our supply chains integrated across six continents mean countries can specialize and we can drive down the cost of good but it also means high levels of fragility. So something like a pandemic happens in one area and you get cascading spread of not only the virus, 
but also failures of supply chains like our food systems that require people to operate. Food system disruptions can cascade into all sorts of other crises. The Syrian refugee crisis was in part caused by droughts and crop failures. To those of us more privileged in the global north, in the early stages of collapse, this looks like the cost of our favorite Chinese meal just went up $5 while the portion size went down. The point here is that on our current trajectory, eventually global collapse will come for all of us. This is enough to make your head explode. I know. But stick with me. There's a lot more to the story. So now you understand why this time period is unique and that the way we currently solve problems is actually driving deeper problems. I'll come back to this, but right now it's time to talk about the three main underlying drivers of the metacrisis. It's important to keep in mind that underlying these three is the deeper crisis and fragmentation of our psyche that I touched on earlier. Okay, so first underlying driver, market economies with perverse incentives. Not all market economies are capitalist and designed to increase profit at the expense of everything else, but our current global economy is. And by perverse incentives, I mean things like status, financial, power-building incentives, or any incentive that is not aligned with striving to do good for the whole. What generates profits for a company or individual does so at the expense of another company or individual, or our planet. We only profit if we produce goods and services that other people want to buy, meaning we've solved some problem for them, so more revenue generated means more problems solved for more people, right? But there are structural, perverse incentives built into our economics. The shark dead is worth more than the shark alive. When there are wars, the military-industrial complex profits and GDP goes up. More sick people paying for pharmaceuticals means GDP goes up. Destroying rainforests to build fancy vacation resorts means GDP goes up. So we've got a global system that is trying to maximize GDP no matter the cost. And yes, this system has generated lots of benefits for some people on the planet. I don't want to go back to a time before antibiotics, but it's also true that maximizing profit at the expense of everything else is damaging our health and that of our planet and all the other species with which we share our beautiful planet with and pointing us towards a path of extinction. Okay, second underlying driver of the metacrisis is externalities of growth, business, and industry that are often offloaded onto the environment and the poorest among us. For example, the U.S. sends tons and tons of trash to the poorest parts of Global South countries. This is why you see gobs of plastic bottles washing up on the shorelines of West Africa. Our current economic system incentivizes CEOs to maximize profits, and there are really only two ways to do that. One is you pay people less, or two, you extract more from nature and pollute her without paying for the harm you're doing. Corporations get to privatize the benefits and socialize the losses. And so the way we're operating right now is a bit like cancer cells. Before someone dies of cancer, they have the most cancer cells in their body than they've ever had. And then all the cancer cells die when the person dies. When cancer cells are alive, they're extracting more from the human and replicating faster than other cells. So it seems like they're winning in the very short term. 
but they're actually killing the host they depend upon. Humans are caught in a system that looks like a cancer on the biosphere, where we are maximizing extracting from the earth on which we depend to win in the very short term, like making lots of money, which then drives more consumption and extraction. The other aspect of externalities is, of course, what I've covered earlier, where the way we often try to solve problems displaces them from one area to another. Reducing carbon emissions in the U.S. won't help the planet if the way we reduce them is by offloading our production and waste to the global south. And this brings us to the third underlying driver of the metacrisis, which is group coordination problems like the multipolar trap. This basically means scenarios where what wins in the short term forces everyone to race towards that thing, even if everyone racing towards that thing is bad for everyone in the long term. This is the multipolar trap, and you see it in the market race to maximize profits, arms races to develop technology, and tragedies of the commons. Let's unpack each of these a bit, because I know it's a lot of buzzwords. Okay, the first group coordination problem, market races to maximize profits. What's an example of a market race to maximize profits? If nations are in economic competition with each other, as they currently are, and our economies are based on fossil fuels, which they currently are, no one wants to price carbon properly to account for its pollution, because if the U.S. does, it will be disadvantaged relative to China, who isn't pricing carbon. And if both the U.S. and China don't agree to price carbon, then neither will any other nation. It gets even trickier. If somehow the U.S. could price carbon properly, anything based on fossil fuels would become more expensive. Which means anything you buy would become more expensive, because everything right now is based on a fossil fuel economy. And so if we just stopped pumping oil tomorrow, the poorest among us would get hurt first and worst, because they wouldn't be able to absorb the price shocks. When you start to understand this market race to maximize profits, you'll see it in play everywhere. Second multipolar trap, tragedy of the commons. This looks like I need clean air to live, but I don't have to pay for it. Trees clean the air. If I cut down a tree, I can use that to build a deck on my house or sell it to someone else. And I won't miss the tiny oxygen benefit that I get from cutting down that one tree or see the tiny damage it causes to the air. But when everyone thinks that way, everyone will cut down all the trees. This is one contributing factor to how past local civilizations like that of Easter Island collapsed. Now, it's important to say here that it is possible to create and maintain effective commons without some sort of top-down laws or regulations. Many indigenous peoples and Europeans before feudal times effectively managed land commons. Eleanor Ostrom's work has identified core design principles for the successful management of the commons and is based on her observation of these principles in practice in communities. Okay, another multipolar trap arms races. This looks like Google working to build AI technology. And since Microsoft competes with Google, it also has to build AI technology. So they're both racing to do it as fast as possible because that's what will maximize their profits. They're not incentivized by the system to slow down and do proper risk assessments to ensure they consider all the potential possible negative consequences before releasing it to the public. Now imagine you're the CEO of Google or Microsoft. And you think you're more ethical than the other guy. You have kids and care about the risks AI poses for your kids. 
And so you want to slow down and develop AI as safely as possible. But the first mover advantage is significant. And if you slow down, then the other guy who you think is less ethical than you just wins. So you say, I'm the more ethical person. I'll speed up trying to beat the other guy because I think that's better for humanity, which of course means the other guy speeds up. So you're caught in this trap where the proper risk assessments just never get done. Perhaps this sounds grim or too complex to wrap our brains around, but my hope blossoms around this fact. If we can better understand the meta crisis, then we now have a much smaller set of problems that we actually have to address to make vast improvements across many areas. This is fucking fantastic news. Okay, now let's get into what we might call two global attractors pulling us forward into the future. The first attractor is chaos. This is a world of breakdown of our social fabric and collapse that likely ends in a high-tech war of all against all. So now we don't have one technological weapon of mass destruction like nukes, we have many. We have drones that can be made in basements that can destroy factories. We have regular people that can get chemical and biological weapons and create bombs following directions on YouTube. So unlike following World War II, we can't create some sort of mutually assured destruction system because it's near impossible to monitor all these risks. So how do we make it through this much distributed technological power with the current incentive systems designed for destruction? We can't. The second attractor is dystopia an oppressive world born out of a desire to mitigate the risks of chaos leading to high-tech centralized control systems. So, for example, we might be able to regulate the companies that make drones, but there's likely some DIY information on the internet that tells people how they can turn their drones into weapons, so now we have to control information online, or we have to get rid of all privacy and create some kind of always-on-everywhere surveillance so we can know what everyone's doing in their basements. This is a path similar to the one China is going down. Both of these are bad. I think everyone will agree that we don't want either of these scenarios. They're both really bad outcomes for humanity and won't last long because they both lead to eventual extinction. What's worse is that the solution to chaos looks like oppressive control that leads to dystopia. And the solution to dystopia looks like increased freedom, which leads to chaos. What the fuck, right? Okay. These are not new attractors. Free and open societies have always had to manage them. But as I took you through earlier, we are now facing multiple global existential risks in an age of rapid technological development. And so we need an ongoing, dynamic mechanism of global governance with love, ecology, and justice at its heart. We need a third attractor. The third attractor is not a solution. Remember, a solution implies it's something we can control and create, and then we're done. The third attractor is a response to the metacrisis. It's a process. It's a way forward and towards a flourishing future for a global civilization that lives in harmony with each other and the earth and remembers that we are all interrelated and part of a larger whole. With a deeper understanding of the problems we face, 
we can work towards design principles that support this flourishing future. One way to think about this is using a framework that Marvin Harris wrote about in his book, Cultural Materialism, of superstructure, social structure, and infrastructure. Superstructure is our culture, values, beliefs, and worldviews. For shorthand, I'll call this culture. Social structure is how we organize our society, our economy, governance, political systems, laws, and institutions. Let's call this political economy. And infrastructure is the technology and tools and the production of goods and services that civilization depends upon and meets its needs with. We can call this tech. These three are completely entangled. They influence and cause each other, which means we have to think about changes to all three simultaneously. It also means we need people working in all three areas right now. And so as you listen to this next bit, I invite you to think about your own interests, skills, and networks, and where you feel most called to contribute, either in your existing role or something new that you pursue. Okay, first, let's talk about culture. What do we believe about our world and what is valuable? Do we believe that we are all individual humans that are self-made and can be completely self-reliant, and to get ahead we have to compete with other humans no matter the cost? Or do we believe that we are all facets of one integrated, self-evolving reality where the well-being of one is completely entangled with the well-being of another? When we look to many indigenous and ancient traditions, we see a respect for wholeness. We see an understanding that humans are not the web of life, that we are a strand within it, and whatever we do to the web, we do to ourselves. This understanding has also been validated by science in fields like complexity science, cybernetics, and quantum physics. So a culture that is oriented towards what's good for the whole longer term will result in actions that create economic, political, legal, educational, etc. systems that are all very different from the ones that we currently have, which are mostly based on, I gotta get mine. This certainly includes a move away from our hyper-consumerist culture. Indigenous Comanche scholar and activist LaDonna Harris talks about an alternative worldview based on the four R's, relationship, responsibility, reciprocity, and redistribution. These relate to each other and circularly and continually move in a life-supporting direction. Relationship recognizes the kinship obligation and the value in relationship with all of life. Responsibility is the obligation to the community and that it's imperative to nurture and care for relations. Reciprocity is the cyclical obligation or balancing what is given with what is taken. And redistribution is the sharing obligation, sharing what one possesses in abundance. Imagine a world based on these four R's. It would look radically different. Okay, second, political economy. Remember, this means our economy, politics, governance, laws, and institutions. A critical shift we need to make is moving from an economic system that advantages the few and disadvantages the many, defined by private ownership and pricing based on scarcity, to an economic system that is defined by making sure that the incentive of every agent and the well-being of every other agent and the commons is aligned 
with our best attempt to eliminate unintended consequences, meaning the system is actually built to create systemic advantage for the whole. So this is not communism, capitalism, or socialism. It's something different that was never possible before because it requires a level of global consciousness and coordination that's never existed. This is how the human body works. If we're healthy, none of our cells are trying to compete with each other to advantage themselves. They're self-organizing in a way that creates what's best for the whole. This might mean we look beyond how we've organized ourselves as nation-states and seek some other ways of organizing. This might look like decentralized power and decision-making where those closest to the impacts are the ones making the decisions about what should happen. There's a lot here to explore, and many people around the globe are working on different ways of organizing ourselves. Okay, last category, tech. With respect to tech, we need to move from a linear materials economy that extracts from the earth faster and more efficiently, unsustainably from finite resources and turns it into trash that pollutes land and oceans, to a closed-loop or circular materials economy, where we turn the trash into new stuff so we stop extracting from the earth faster than it can regenerate itself and stop producing so much waste. In order to do this, we need to move to a post-growth world where GDP is no longer the global measure of success and where all of us and future generations can have a better quality of life sustainably. Now, the other thing that's helpful to think about within the context of the three areas I've outlined, culture, political economy, and tech, is the timescale of our actions. Here, Daniel Christian Wall's Three Horizons model is helpful. Daniel Schmachtenberger talks about it as triage, transition, and long-term, although I like to call it triage, transition, and transformation, and think about it like the three Ts. Danella Meadows, leverage points, places to intervene in a system, can also be considered within a Three Horizons framework model. Horizon 1, which can also be called triage, is basically to stop the harm, particularly for things that are very high risk. Here, we're working to address immediate issues, not systemic ones, but those that buy us more time and give us a shot at addressing the systemic ones. We're keeping the lights on and maintaining the status quo. An example might be protecting the Amazon so that it doesn't turn from a massive carbon sink into a massive carbon emitter. Activism to stop the building of an oil pipeline that displaces indigenous people and pollutes their water supply might be another example. Horizon 2, or transition, is when we're working to change the rules of a system or the distribution of power of the rules within the system. We're identifying opportunities to improve existing systems and engage in disruptive innovation. An example here might be Tesla, which has fueled the electric car revolution. Tesla innovated in the auto sector and created an electric car that was better than any fossil fuel car to sway more people to go electric. They're certainly innovators, but they're still operating in the same paradigm of individually owned cars that have to be purchased from a profit-maximizing company that continues to enrich a billionaire. Another example might be the B Corp or the Benefit Corporation certification which requires corporations to make a profit, but consider the impact on workers, customers, suppliers, communities, and the environment. It's much better than not doing those things, but again, you're still operating within the global capitalist system 
which requires profit maximization. So if you don't always seek to maximize your profits, you'll be put out of business by someone who does. Horizon three, or transformation, is when the paradigm out of which the system evolved its goals, power structure, rules, and culture transforms into something entirely different. This is when the rules of the system, the incentives, the punishments, and constraints transform from an extractive culture to a regenerative one. An example here might be the delegation of the rights of nature at the UN, which for the first time put the natural world on the same legal standing as humanity and recognizes that nature has rights just like humans and deserves to be protected. Another example might be a triple bottom line requirement for all transnational corporations or Fortune 100 companies. This would mean they are fundamentally reorganized with a legal requirement to pay equal attention to profit people and the planet. And in order to continue operating, a representative community of people impacted by the corporation has to periodically and continually approve their charters. This could have a positive downstream cascading effect on how all other smaller corporations operate. Now, none of the areas I've outlined, culture, political economy, or tech, are more important than the others. And none of the timescales we've talked about, Horizon 1, 2, or 3, are more important. We need to pursue all of them simultaneously and in coordination with each other for humanity and life on Earth to make it through. It's the greatest challenge humanity has ever faced, and it's not impossible. Our purpose as humans is simple. It's to be stewards for all of life. We have the capability to destroy all of life, and so we must also have the responsibility and wisdom to be its steward. So now that you're equipped with an understanding of the metacrisis and our current moment, I hope you'll join me on future podcasts as we find out what we can do to support the emergence of a more beautiful world. And as I close this episode, I want to say that I believe we can nourish the conditions that steer us away from global chaos or dystopia and move toward the emergence of a third attractor that looks a lot more like the type of world most of us would want to live in and leave for our children. My hope lies in more people better understanding our global challenges and responding in ways that honor the sacredness of life, coupled with what Nora Bateson calls a funny poesis, or quote, the unseen coalescence of life towards vitality, end quote. Where do you feel inspired to contribute? You were born during this time between worlds for a reason. How will you be a good ancestor for future generations? How will you use the gift of life that you've been given? If you like the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge, subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together.